Hello! Welcome to another MetaView Salon, where with every episode we try out new technology that uh, helps improve our literacy when it comes to using video. Uh, today we're going to talk about the future of work everywhere. The idea that you could work anywhere, everywhere, but maybe that's not the case, or maybe it is. What policies help make that the case? What policies hinder that from being the case? Over a year into this pandemic, and we're getting to the point where not only are we rethinking what a post-pandemic work life will be, but many people are, quite frankly, not interested in coming back to the office, whereas there are others who are desperate to get back to the office. And so it's a challenge for organizations to reconcile these different interests. But I think there's also an opportunity for good public policy that makes it easy for private organizations to accommodate these needs, because that's often the role of the state as a whole. So with that said, as kind of a brief intro, we've got a range of our usual MetaViews participants who are here to offer their insights and perspective. Uh, none have yet figured out how to use the snap camera as I have to completely obfuscate and change their identity. Now, the irony of uh, me using this, because I, I don't know if you guys know uh, Zaphod Beeblebrox, but I also like the idea of like there being two of me and that I could sort of, you know, have two talking heads or have someone sort of talking out the side of my mouth. So it, you know, it was really a way of playing with different technology and playing uh, with different senses of self and who we work. So I kind of want to bring that up over the course of today's conversation. But Sumit, I wanted to throw to you for starters, if only because today's topic was at your request. And I, I'm curious, uh, uh, both on a personal level, but also on a kind of society level, why you think that this issue is so pressing. And, and, and what do you think are the key frames or the key hooks that we should wrap this discussion around? Thanks, Jesse. I mean, that's, um, you know, I'm still figuring some of those details out myself. I mean, I, I think what a, a question that I've been trying to think of more around is that uh, why are things still existing in limbo? As in, why is there no clarity around uh, what the future of work and workplace looks like? Um, and while some organizations are, are taking the lead and ensuring some policies are being put in place, some messaging is being put out there, we're not seeing enough of a shift happen to, uh, to this model and investment being made in a way that the shift can happen at, a, at the pace at which we are trying to uh, you know, recover from this pandemic. So for me, one of the things that has been a question for me is, a lot of conversations happening around remote work and uh, in parallel to the concept of distributed work, right? And I, I simply create that separation. I think most people might have already heard that, but you know, remote work operating more as uh, uh, something that an individual does, right? Whereas distributed work is a framework that an organization adopts. Uh, and so I see a lot of conversation happening about remote work and not enough happening about distributed work because when an organization starts thinking about building a framework, they're thinking about lots of different things. It's not just where you're located. It's 
It's the infrastructure, it's the productivity, it's the organization's culture building activities. It's how do you think about technology and tools? And so while we are seeing conversations arise around remote work and companies talking about how they're going to offer that flexibility, very few are really leaning into those conversations around their framework around how they'll adopt it. We're seeing, for instance, a movement happening coming out of Ireland that's making a national commitment to some of these strategies. Uh, but my hope for today's discussion is that we think about all of the different layers of distributed work that organizations need to adopt and sort of shift away from putting the onus and the responsibility and frankly, the, the stress of remote work on the individual, the individual themselves. Well, and I think phrasing it as distributed really works within the larger digital motif of the decentralized society, right? Of, you know, whether it's uh, technology like the blockchain or distributed ledgers, or just the internet's logic of trying to decentralize and trying to distribute. And it speaks to a resiliency that organizations should aspire to. Right. That you're trying to not only recover from a pandemic, but plan for the next catastrophe, plan for the next crisis, plan for the next challenge. Because, you know, if we're lucky, they'll be minor, but for sure they're going to be there. And so I think to your uh, last point, it also I think needs we need to take the pressure off the individual. Right. This shouldn't just be left to those who are affluent or those who have privilege. But we need to have the open conversation about how do we make this accessible, which, you know, part of it was looking at affordable housing in rural environments, because in Canada, we are now seeing a housing crisis everywhere. And so it means that there are a lot of policies to go with it. Uh, Vasiliki, you wanted to jump in? Sure. I mean, I think we are talking about something that is limited to affluent people. So I just wanted to push back on you saying, you know, remote work for everyone. That's not true. Like, that's just not real. Remote work and distributed work is a talent play, uh, nothing more. And I think, you know, without, I guess, policy support, we're seeing the effects of Shopify salaries going to Hamilton, going to Halifax and outpacing growth. So I actually think it is something that privileges certain types of individuals and certain types of companies, which does not actually, to my mind, warrant a broad policy response to support those workers, you know, necessarily. I think, sure, we're talking about their internet connection and, and productivity and, uh, you know, as a prompt to get more people interested in underserviced areas, that's fantastic. Um, but we can also look to places like Prince Edward County, which before the pandemic, we're already seeing an influx of uh, outside dollars, um, lots of benefits, you know, more property tax, people's who were, people who were living there who wanted to kind of capitalize on their home could and, and saw gains and one of their main assets that they would never have seen otherwise, historic gains. Um, but they've also seen a population that changing population that meant, uh, you know, a school had to close and they're just not building new housing, right? Mm -hmm. So it comes down, it's, you know, uh, the affordability piece, we can debate that a lot too. And I don't want to take us too off track from the purpose of the salon, but, you know, is it the state's responsibility to prompt more uh, apartment buildings in Prince Edward County to support the service workers who cannot work remotely, who are servicing, fundamentally servicing who we're talking about, which is the creative class, not to lean too hard 
on Richard Florida, but we're talking about a creative class problem and you cannot offshore your haircut. So these, there are so many workers who cannot work in this way and will never work in this way. The future of work for them is more surveillance, more cameras, more time tracking, less flexibility than ever before. It's going in the opposite direction. So I disagree on two points. One, I disagree that that was a distraction because I think you're drawing out the issue really quite well. And I think it's getting to the substance of what we can and should talk about. But I disagree. And perhaps this is the last time we'll mention Mr. Florida on today's episode. But I disagree with the idea that the creative class is exclusive. Right. And, and I think there's there's two metaphors here that we should either play with or dissect. You know, one is the middle class. Now, we could have a whole separate discussion on whether the concept of the middle class is dead. But in my lifetime, most government policy has been about expanding the middle class. And, and the middle class as this desirable destination for certainly working class people, if not most people, and that the role of the kind of uh, social state, the democratic kind of liberal state, is to make the middle class as accessible as possible. And that's what I think we're talking about here. Because a lot of service workers that I know, granted I know people with high literacy, have a, sh a Shopify side hustle yeah. or an Etsy side hustle. Or yeah. they, they are engaged in remote work as entrepreneurs. And if there were more supports to help them, this would be a side hustle in addition to the service sector jobs. And, and that's why I think that in this rubric of distributed work or in this rubric of a decentralized marketplace, there's a tremendous opportunity. If, if to, I agree with you, the people who are there, would, they don't need help, right? The, the policy should focus on getting more people there. Right. On making it more accessible, on acknowledging that part time work for a lot of people fits into this rubric and that, you know, even people who are uh, creative professionals in the traditional sense are also now hustling. Like the hustle economy is unfortunately very pervasive. And I think that's part of why these types of working conditions and these types of working situations are, are so relevant. Jeanette, you, you've got your hand up, so I'm going to uh, bring you into the conversation. Go right ahead. Well, I just wanted to go back to the point that Sumit made about, you know, the, the, the responsibility for this being downloaded onto the individual. And, uh, yeah, of course, the most privileged individuals are going to be the ones who are taking most advantage. I couldn't help but think of this whole vaccine hunters phenomenon, right? Who is riding that wave? You know, rich white people who are good with computers and, you know, and they're, I mean, in our area alone, you know, there are all kinds of people from Ottawa flooding some of these really poor communities because they get a tweet about, oh, maybe there's some vaccines there. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's the connection. Like, if it's a class-based thing, if this is some kind of bougie digital nomad phenomenon, it's because those people are best positioned to exploit a situation where there there is no systematic approach. There is no accessibility enforced by, you know, policy or regulation or whatever. It's kind of, you know, everyone for themselves. And I, the last thing I just wanted to add is, I, you know, to go back to... Um, the, the whole idea of the future of work, I couldn't help but think about that this, the other issue here is power, 
right? And the way power is exercised in office settings in particular. And that decentralization really kind of goes to the heart of that. I, I saw an article this morning that was talking about, you know, all of this, these stories, these tales that are coming out, especially, you know, around Hollywood figures and office harassment, and that they were making the claim that, you know, this environment incubates that sort of harassment. The, the, the authoritarian structuring of most office uh, environments really invites that. And to go back to, you know, what Vass was saying about the surveillance um, that, you know, the essential workers or the people who have to be in person, that's, I mean, that's happening everywhere. It's just, they're the vanguard, right? They're the guinea pigs. All that shit gets tested on the poor people who can't object, and then it spreads everywhere. Okay, that, that's, that was my piece. I mean, Sharita, whenever power comes up in the conversation, that's always generally a cue for your particular kind of political economic analysis. I'm curious where you sort of see both the value of remote work but also the, you know, the, the class dynamics or the, the accessibility, perhaps, that should be part of this, this context. Um, okay, but I also want to go back to what Sumit was talking about, um, the whole idea of distributed versus remote work. Um, but first of all, I mean, one of the complaints that I've heard about remote work is that it takes people out of the politics of power that is there on a face-to-face -face basis. Mm -hmm. And this might be especially true for women who opt for a more hybrid way of working where um, doing some remote work actually helps their lives, may help their lives in some ways with their children. At the same time, they're removed from the power politic at work. And it's always there. It does not go away. So let me go back to the distributed work. I'm really interested in that idea, um, particularly in terms of culture. Like, what is good culture for distributed work? Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, as everybody is ta was talking, I'm chewing on this in my mind and, and trying to come up with a good example. So I'm going to throw that back out. What's a good example of distributed work and culture? How has an organization or an institution, if we were to look at government or healthcare or whatever, um, give me an example where something like that has happened, where it works, where we might have an example. Um, education, forget it. It ain't there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and at all, I, right? I mean, you know, software, the software industry certainly has quite a few examples that I think range the spectrum from really functional and effective to completely toxic and dysfunctional. Um, there, there is some research around sort of what works and what doesn't. Yeah. A lot of it emphasizes emotional labor, right? Yeah. A lot of it emphasizes sort of exaggerating or amplifying some of the dynamics that we take for granted in physical settings but that we need to put extra attention and extra emphasis. 
And interestingly enough, right now, the government of Canada is really embracing remote and distributed work. And I suspect like the software industry, they're experiencing the full spectrum mm -hmm. of, you know, culture and results. I I've had a little bit of experience with the some of the people who work in Transport Canada who I was really impressed with how they were collaborating and how they were working because they were emphasizing the emotional labor and because they were emphasizing, you know, or exaggerating a lot of the physical characteristics. But, you know, those for me are both kind of limited uh, in, in my own context. I'd be curious to hear sort of what others say. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Doofus Tumish in our chat on Twitch posted remote work culture, a solution to the politics of power. And, you know, he's sort of putting the opposite that where many people argue that in remote work, as you mentioned, you don't have access to that power. Maybe that's a benefit, right? Maybe you don't get lost in the pettiness in the kind of bullshit. You could just focus on doing your job and getting stuff done. So it does speak, I think, to a kind of spectrum, both culturally and politically, as to how these organizations kind of play out. Now, Neil, we haven't heard from you yet. You're welcome to take up Sharita's challenge as well as uh, jump into the conversation as you see fit. Now, Sharita said that uh, education is not happy. And uh, I can say that education is struggling. Hmm. And it's struggling mightily. And we have a, an awful lot of people that are doing their very best and still not succeeding. And so, unfortunately, uh, they feel like failures. Uh, they're not in, yeah. not feeling encouraged. Um, but there are some premises in this that I think we haven't looked at. And that comes back to that notion of culture as well. So while I understand that the corner office is a kind of a difficult thing to identify online, um, office culture really is a good thing for a lot of people. Going to work is a good thing for a lot of people. It gives them routine, but it gives them uh, human interaction. And one of the things that we've really discovered in the last year is how important human interaction is and that a lot of people have been starved by it. And I've had that conversation with people on numerous occasions. They miss people and they don't even care who those people are. They just like the fact that they can go out and talk to people. So that's one of the things. The other thing is that I think we have to be really careful about privileging work over other kinds of things in our lives. Because, um, Jesse, you've become a, a fascinating case study. You got out of Dodge, and you're building yourself a new life. And so far, you're really pleased. I mean, you're happy, and, and you've, you've innovated all kinds of things. And one of the reasons that you're happy is because you've innovated a whole bunch of things. Your life is a lot more exciting than it was two years ago. But um, that not, doesn't necessarily happen for everybody. We've got a really interesting essential worker class of people who are clearly suffering under this pandemic now because they can't go online. They can't hide at a screen where they can't get infected. And so that's really highlighting some of this problem. But the other thing is that I only work, uh, right now the teachers that I talk to are working 12 hour days, which they've never worked in their lives. And they're, they're burning out as we speak. But even if you work a 12 hour day, you've got 12 hours off. Now, where are you when you've got those 12 hours? What kind of cultural experiences do you have at that point? 
And in Toronto, especially, we have um, neighborhoods, I could even say ghettos in some cases, right, where we have conglomerations of particularly ethnic people who've chosen to live together. And so even though they do do the work, they can go back and be comfortable in the culture that they like. But if somebody moves to a remote part of Ontario with that Anglo-Saxon flavor to the, to the culture, they may not feel that same comfort. And so I think we have to, you know, as, as so often the case, we really have to look a little bit deeper. So <clears throat> that notion of the uh, online work, as someone has earlier said, is only realistic and workable for some people. Mm-hmm. And for others who have to be physically present, and that's not going to change, uh, then it's not going to work for them. They've got to follow the money. Vast, did you want to jump back in? I wanted to apologize to everyone because I'm also eating my lunch, which is why I keep going off camera. But on the education side, Neil, I, t- I take your point, but also wanted to offer that, um, you know, I'm preparing to, to launch a student uh, program at McMaster University that starts next week in COVID considerations. We have to be online first for our first year. And in so many ways, that's it's a blessing and a curse. But to design a program to be online and then also try to like learn from these best practices. I'm learning from our incoming class of students. You know, people can, they don't have to move for one year. Some people have moved back with parents if they're coming right off undergrad and they're not paying, you know, that additional rent. And we are kind of open about, you know, craving that in-person connection and opportunity, as you've said, but then kind of making the most of, you know, not just Zoom, but, um, I'd have to go look at my list of other platforms I've been testing and trying to, you know, that proxy more like a being at a party or giving you some mobility or different ways to build trust. You know, how do you create a meaningful intellectual experience online? Uh, I don't think we necessarily have all the answers, but um, I'm still excited about it. And I just at the same time totally take your point that people are running pretty ragged and it sucks to learn all in one place. It sucks, sucks to work all in one place and not have the option to be heading off somewhere else. Anyway, I was just responding to Neil. Nothing else major. So I wanted to uh, quickly bring in uh, Danger Darren's comments in the chat. Darren says, extrovert here, dislike the pandemic, worked in close proximity to fellow construction production peers until I inevitably got infected with COVID can't swing a hammer through a computer just yet. Um, But I think it does speak to the, you know, the way in which the toll of this pandemic has uh, overwhelmingly been shouldered by people who work uh, in factories, in warehouses, in job sites, where they really uh, did not have the opportunity to say, you know, I'd like to uh, take some time off and avoid this plague, please, uh, without actually resulting in a dramatic shock in income. And I think that is part of the larger policy question on, on how we should frame this. Now, Vass, I definitely want to have a conversation with you at some future point about the platforms that you're evaluating the same way that I almost a year from now want to hear from some of the students as to what it was like for them, or or maybe even halfway through, because certainly Murley uh, uh, has just finished his school year at York, 
And he, out of it, you know, beyond the dissatisfaction that I think many undergrads have, he came out of it with a lot of design thoughts and a lot of, you know, ideas that I think similarly, you know, your students, you could imagine the way in which from a public policy perspective, they could be inspired to think about what this means in the context of distributed work or in the context of online work, given what's happening at the government of Canada and their commitment to making this possible. Now, Jeanette, you've got your hand up, so by all means, jump into the conversation. But I do want to flag a Sharita's question just so that we don't forget it, which is to think about the culture, right? Because so often when we, we when society has these conversations, we focus on the tools and not just the social cues and the social support structures that go along with them. Jeanette? I just want, you know, when you were listing the all of the job categories that needed to be in person, I just thought, wow, remember unions? <laughs> <laughs> like, how does that factor in if we're talking about the future of work? Because we're living in an era where union power has really been decimated, but you know, there are some stirrings of maybe that's going to come back. And I just, I wonder how that fits into this. Oh, that's a very valid question. And I, I think it's, you know, unions are part of the institutional dis disappointment or the fact that we kind of feel that all institutions have let us down. But I think you also rightly identify the opportunity that there is a real thirst. There's a desire for collective action, for, you know, demanding a better society and maybe unions could bring that uh, can help bring that apart. And similarly, Darren followed up with another interesting question that I think ties to that, which is immigration. That one thing that has really affected Darren, aside from the reduced hours due to supply chain issues, is immigration challenges. COVID isn't just making running to the coffee store difficult. It's also making changing nationalities extremely difficult, if not impossible at the moment. Darren being an American who would like to emigrate here to Canada. So, you know, again, this speaks to the point of privilege that there are things pre-pandemic that we might have taken for granted that are now really quite difficult. You know, I, a whole separate conversation for another day is elective surgeries and the kind of, you know, minor medical conditions which have been completely swept off the table. So in our kind of Going around the table, Sumit, I'm going to bring you back in because we've done a full lap. So it's time to circle uh, uh, towards you. And I'm going to throw Sharita's question at you. What do you think or what have you witnessed as some of the cultural attributes, the cultural assets uh, that really lend, uh, enable distributed organizing and distributed work? Yeah, I mean, you know, picking up on a question Sharita asked earlier is where is it happening? How is it happening? I think, uh, you know, using using Shopify and perhaps eBay as an example of what they're doing in Ireland might be a good starting point. You know, I'll start by saying, first of all, yes, when we talk about remote work, we are largely talking about uh, people that can operate from behind a screen, right? Uh, and there are certainly debates to be had around how that applies to another uh, you know, segment of the working population that does not have that flexibility. Um, but, but you know, maybe using that as a starting point, what Shopify has done in Ireland was really interesting, right? They've got about 400 people all working remotely. Uh, eBay sort of done the same. And what they've done is tried to create pockets of culture across different parts of Ireland where these 
folks are working from. So you don't have a central office where everybody's going in. Instead, what you've created is depending on where your majority of your workforce is located, you pick different points and created points um, where people can congregate, they can meet. So instead of people coming into work, you're taking work to people, right? Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting form of distributed work where uh, you're still trying to find a balance between culture, engagement, you know, both and, and what I think of as digital, which is, you know, a physical digital environment uh, where people can still congregate. Now, culturally speaking, there's a few key things that come into play when it comes to culture, right? I think it starts with, first of all, a new social contract between the workplace and the individual. And that social contract has to be founded on trust and transparency. If it's based on surveillance, then you've already, you know, uh, started from negative ground, whereas... Yeah. If, so, so I think that new social constructs uh, contract still has to be constructed. We're in the process of figuring out what that looks like, but that is going to take into place, um, take into consideration the employee experience, uh, transparency, surveillance tools, uh, uh, probably a more agile organizational chart, um, and then thinking about resource allocation and in, in, across all of these areas, right? Because we are talking about um, a distributed work perspective has to think about a collection of resources on a common mission where people can tap into all these sources. So even things like cloud computing are playing a role in thinking about how resource allocation happens. And, and, and so I don't know what the answer is. I, I sort of go, here's all these pieces that need to be taken into consideration. But I, I sort of like the idea of work being taken to the people versus people coming into work. Yeah. And so creating pockets uh, based on how an organization's employee base is situated and thinking about creating smaller hubs for congregation of culture seems to me an interesting place for us to at least start. Yeah. And, and it kind of ties back to Jeanette's point about unions, because I've been thinking about something similar, which is the model of the guild, right? And the idea of hiring halls. That, you know, the, the, the value of a guild is you're the one who's organized the talent. You're the person who has the, the amazing labor, the expertise, the knowledge, and people come to you, right? So it's to your point that instead of these people going to the work, the work comes to them. And it allows for a completely different negotiating position. And I... I I've been, I'm in the early days of fantasizing what that would mean in a, I, I like your fidgetal idea, right? Of, of kind of a rural context where you're creating a local economy, but it's tied to the global marketplace via the internet in terms of the way in which you're selling and communicating and doing that expertise. But let me take a brief pivot because something you said, Sumit, like you evoked the issue of trust because you sort of did the opposite of surveillance. You're sort of starting from a negative, right? You're saying we distrust you versus what if you had systems that began with trust that said, look, we're going to start with trust. If you want to burn us, we've put that in, right? And, and here's one scenario, like paying people up front. Here you go. Here's your first 500 bucks. Go do the work. If someone fucks off, okay, you lose the 500 bucks, right? But the other people who go, wow, they trust me. I'm going to work really harder. What if your productivity gains far exceed any of the loss that you might have on people who might rip you off? 
And these types of systems are, are rarely thought of in the risk management or the kind of corporate culture that we currently have. But I think it speaks to the different types of measures or different ways in which we could foster that. Now, interestingly enough, I think on a technical level, and, and here I want to do a, a, a both technical and cultural, I think the rise of Clubhouse, right, the audio room based app is significant. Not just because all social media platforms are now copying Clubhouse, but there's an intimacy that comes with these audio rooms. I've experienced it on Discord, right? I enjoy hanging out with our friends at Electrical Longboard. And part of it is, is I often joke that the audio room's like a podcast where people are just chatting, but it gives a sense of familiarity. It gives a, a physical social space. I've been, again, thinking about how to redesign that and reachieve that. But I think these are the ingredients that kind of speak to what Sharita was talking about when it comes to culture. Now, uh, yeet and delete 666, close friend of the fam and network, says that they have a client who prefers to pay them up front and they feel incentivized to do a good job because they appreciate that gesture of trust and respect. And I think that that speaks to the opportunity of rewarding talent and harnessing talent when you operate with the assumption of trust or the desire to foster a social connection. Jeanette, you raised your digital hand. Why don't you jump in? So, you know, this makes me think about the connection between school culture and workplace culture. And the, you know, I'm always banging on about how schools are basically Oops. Oh, Jeanette, you hit the mute button. That So that a school is, you know, I often argue is a compliance factory, which is there to condition you for all the crap you're going to put up with in the workplace. But what it brings to mind is uh, this vision that Sumit had of the work going to the students, you know, made me think about, well, how would that look in an educational situation? Would that trust, you know, that you, Jesse, mentioned in terms of paying up front, you know, would that have a parallel in something like ungrading where, you know, a, a typical strategy there is you sit down with the student and you say, well, you know, what do you think this deserves? Um, and, you know, tell me the grade you think you've earned here and you get it, but I want you to persuade me why that's correct. Um, and that's, that's taking a huge leap of faith in the student, which, you know, that is not very commonplace right now. Like that is a, that is a real inversion of the traditional paradigm. Um, and I just, I wonder what the connection between those two cultures would have to be. Do we have to see a future of education in order to see the future of the workplace? Well, and uh, yeet and delete uh, referred to this as the harmless method. You give the class to the students to lead a discussion based on the material in a circle to maintain equity. Teachers just guide the discussion from time to time. Sorry, the Harkness method. Uh, autocomplete did a number on us. And I also want to read a couple of comments from uh, Darren. Uh, Darren post or Danger Darren posted, I feel like uh, prior to resource allocation for tech-based or information-based jobs, we need to figure out the supply chain for things like basic necessities, groceries, clothing. This won't be the last pandemic due to an infectious disease. 
And being in a dairy state in the U.S., Darren watched resources like milk get literally dumped down the drain because the next stage after milking wasn't there and you need workers in a factory to produce the cheese or workers to drive the trucks to distribute the food. There were so many basic breakdowns in basic commodities on supply chain. And I think that very much speaks to the notion of distributed work that we're also evoking the idea of a distributed supply chain. Now, Sharita, you had your hand up. You obviously did not anticipate the comments that I just read. So feel free to uh, respond to anything that we've said so far or something that you've just thought of right now. Okay, um, two things. Um, one, what, um, what was described in terms of um, telling a student that, you know, you decide what you deserve. Um, that's something I, I've actually used. And I've also used um, different ways for the group to decide what type of mark you get or grade you get, etc. Um, and this a little bit is for VAS. Um, there are a gr there are groups of people in education now, particularly in terms of university and college, um, that are really looking at a more critical pedagogy, and they are looking at how you really work with people without the whole thing of the grade hanging over your head, or you know, not even a pass fail. Etc., and they're getting some wonderful results from this. Um, in that, people are really working hard. Um, you have to, when I did this, I had to get over the first few weeks or months with students asking me, uh, they didn't trust me, they said you're really going to give, you're not going to fail anybody. I said, no, I'm not going to fail anybody. You're not going to grade on a, on a, you know, a bell's curve. No, I'm not going to grade. I'm not going to do that. Um, and it took them a, uh, maybe a month to really begin to trust me that I would actually do that. Now, the other side of this is I really didn't tell the powers of be that I was doing this. I was close enough to retirement that I didn't give a shit, <laughs> right? So there's a balance to be played there. Um, and how this, I would really like to see this go into the workplace. Um, I did my work mainly, um, and, uh, I did my work um, as Jesse does his in some ways. Yes, I want to get paid, but I did my work because I like doing it. Yeah. Right? Now, that doesn't work for everybody. But if you give somebody um, an incentive or if you, if you don't use negative reinforcement, um, people will tend to work better. There's, you know, that, and also that's how trust is built. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, you don't give somebody an example of distrust and expect them to trust you. Neil, you had your hand up. Thank you. Uh, there's a premise here that we have to re-examine, and that is the, the motivation for working. Uh, there are people who work for pleasure. Um, I enjoy what I do every time I'm working with students. But there are people who work for money. Mm -hmm. And they don't take any particular 
particular pleasure in their work. There are students who go to class because they need a mark, either because they have to have this credit to fill out something or other, or their parents are telling them they have to. They don't really care about what they're learning. And so we have to consider those premises as well. Ideally, we would like people who take pride in what they're doing. And when Jesse advances the $500, he's making the assumption that that person might be someone who takes pride in what they're doing. But that is not always the case. And sometimes we do have to respect that person that's just working for the paycheck. That's, it's not illegal. Mm -hmm. Sumit, you got your hand up? Yeah, I, just to pick up on what Neil said, you know, what I find interesting having taught many years of university is that, yes, there are students that come to just get a piece of paper at the end of it. But even those students have some favorite classes, right? And, and why I state that is that even people with a different intention can actually relate to certain types of education and models of education because that's what an instructor has the potential to facilitate. And similar to that, workplaces have the ability to do that. If somebody's coming in for money, they can still enjoy the environment within the, which they work in. Or if somebody's forced to work, we can still create a space for them to feel safe. And I think what we're talking about with new models of working is uh, how do we create individual autonomy and trust while also building collective alignment, right? I think we have to be very careful, Sumit, about that online environment that you're describing. First of all, it allows for a lot of surveillance. And as people work online, they're actually building a database, an automatic database of their work behaviors, which can be weaponized and used against them or can be rewarded. And so we have to consider that. But we also have to consider that if I'm not in an office environment, it might be easier for me to be bullied or harangued or otherwise singled out uh, by people because it tends to be more of a one-on-one -on -one relationship. So oftentimes, you know, if I get balled out for a, a, maybe an unjust reason, I can go back to my coworkers and I can grieve it and, and we can re remonstrate and back and forth and back and forth and I can process that. But if that happens to me online, one-on-one -on -one with somebody, how do I in fact process that feeling? And how do I in fact push back on, on an abuse? And I think Neil, you're you're absolutely right. I think uh, you know we are we're we're at a stage where we're trying to figure out how to take the traditional model and make it fit the same values fit into a new model. And that's what we're seeing a lot of organizations do. But to your point, I think uh, the real question is how do we create a new system? How do we actually create a new framework? How do we make sure that the values um, are not just you know, traditional values in a new system, but actually re rethink the entire system itself. And and that's where we're at right now. I, I, I don't believe that the digital way is the, is the way to go forward or remote work is the way to operate. I think going back to that point around how do we create these um, hybrid mechanisms of physical and digital environments where people have that recourse as well available to them is going to be important. But I, I do feel that there are challenges with the traditional way of doing things as well, right? Like surveillance or digital surveillance. Also, uh, you know, you've got people surveillance as well in uh, in environments like warehouses and construction sites. Just a different format of surveillance that still existed and and which can also be toxic. So I think we're thinking about how do we how do we sh 
rethink this system instead of just trying to fit, you know, old pieces into a new, uh, new game. So there's, uh, there's also the corporate, so, Jesse, um, and I'm thinking on a macro level. I have a friend who works for a pension plan, and this particular pension plan uh, owns a lot of properties. In other words, it's an industrial landlord. It owns office space in downtown Toronto. And these people are nervous. They're very nervous because this working from home is becoming a trend. It is going to continue after the pandemic. And so now we have these guys who have thousands of square feet in downtown Toronto, and they are not confident that they're going to be able to continue renting that space. And of course, the people who are paying into that pension plan are equally nervous because they they're part owners of that. So this particular pension plan is going to return to its offices as soon as they can, as soon as they're cleared, because they want to set an example and wow. show people, demonstrate that you can go back into offices. And I find that's I mean, a really interesting change. And, and I think it does open a completely separate topic for a future salon, which is the whole yeah. responsible investing, because said pension plan probably has a lot of other investments that if they behave the same way, I, I digress. Fast, you have your <laughs> hand up. Please jump in. Oh, I was just reflecting. I'm so glad we brought the conversation to trust as well, because I think that in a lot of ways, that is what we're talking about. Who, who receives that trust and some of what's been kind of awesome about what the pandemic revealed in terms of who can work from home and that it's not impossible is just unlocking those opportunities. Earlier we were talking about women as well, right? For years, women have been told they actually, they can't work from home and they can't be accommodated and they can't work from home two days a week, et cetera. Um, and now and it's kind of like a major calling of the bluff in that regard in terms of the kind of faux expectations we had at work. Um, and I'm, I'm just glad we're making this connection to value and investments, too, and how that might motivate kind of who, who works where. Um, and then in the parallels to school, yeah, it's interesting to think about, okay, if we're preparing people for a world that's a hybrid world or a digital first world, then we should expect that, you know, in a scholastic experience, they're experiencing something similar. But, but at the same time, you know, the the academy universities at college systems to an extent but especially universities have been remarkably resilient to any sort of change um and no one really calls them on it it's amazing no like okay they have some you know digital aspects um but even the fact that the pace of learning is still you know a standard honors ba is four years on that semester we don't we don't have enough self-directed kind of work accelerated. We have more part-time students than ever before because more people are going back to school, have families, are also working, and, and we don't do a great job accommodating them. It's really tricky. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of my stream of consciousness with my notes and kind of responding in, in ways big and small to, to, to everyone in terms well, of where And speaking of responding to everyone, we've had quite an active chat, so I just want to share a couple of comments. I mean, Sharita, you're very popular amongst our viewers, you know, honest, <laughs> blunt and bright. Uh, Merlatron posted, if only more professors gave less shits about the bureaucracy's agenda, 
Um, and to your point, Vass, it's been interesting watching Murley at the end of term crunch when he clearly has all these projects he'd rather be focusing on that reflect his self-interest. And he's like, I've already given these guys enough time. Like, you know, I want my time back. For sure. Which I, I think a lot of students reflect. Uh, Guter Glee posted, regarding Sharita's point about education, yes, it is indeed challenged everywhere. Even though some educators working remotely are really innovating and doing well, including my child's kindergarten class, the reality is that since there is no set framework yet for remote teachers and learners, they are reinventing and innovating while in the midst of actually trying to teach and learn it means educators are innovating how evaluations and appraisals happen even before the framework gets updated. Sharita's point about doing things differently than what was actually stated on the official course outline. And Danger Darren pointed, while working on some construction sites, I, he had to go on the clock with his cell phone. There are timesheet apps on the market and they're being used but they don't just keep track of your hours. They track your movement and they can even be set up to track your audio. His boss could press a play button and get an accurate to three meters approximation of where I was at any minute of the workday. He didn't mind, but some of the union workers he was with, he was with were shocked and appalled. And so it does speak to how even in the non-remote context, this sort of surveillance is becoming increasingly pervasive and kind of part of the norm of what we expect in terms of a workplace. And that's where, again, I don't see this as an either or, but an opportunity for solidarity and an opportunity for learning amongst everyone. I mean, we wrote a post uh, maybe almost a year ago about how sex workers are often subject to the greatest amount of surveillance and the greatest amount of online policing in terms of doing their job. And we're starting to see the trickle down of that effect of the technology and surveillance that was subject to them is now being subject to increasingly other sectors and other workers in the society. So I think it's important for us to be thinking about the needs of workers and the needs of workplaces uh, both in the physical and in the digital. Uh, this fidgetal word is definitely going to fidget with my brain. Uh, any closing thoughts or kind of big picture thoughts on what we should be thinking about next or what our concerns should be moving forward? Trust is obviously important. It's come up and you, you're, you're reading those comments comes right back to trust. If somebody is surveilling me within three meters, where's the trust? Mm -hmm. Maybe they just like have a crush on you. No, I'm being crazy. <laughs> I think there's a strong role for the provinces. The provinces have been asleep at the wheel when it comes to the future of work and having a technology agenda. We overfocus federally on big tech and it's a huge opportunity for Ontario to lead the way. And I'd even take like a, a task force at this point just to start and kick off and start thinking about both algorithmically mediated work and surveillance at work and kind of proportionality and what's permissible because it's very difficult for people to push back on the kind of surveillance we're talking about. It's happening in tons of places. Um, and I think we'd like to see less of it, but it's been kind of a quiet creep. So that's one of my hopes. 
Well, and to your point about pushing back, it's usually literally a clause of work. Like this is the condition of employment. Yeah. And what I'm curious about it, and maybe we'll focus a future MetaViews, MetaViews issue on, is the counter spyware, which right. doesn't disable the spyware because you recognize that your employer needs to see it, but it fools it. It tricks it. That's right. Fine. And. And, and that, I think, is a, a playful kind of resistance that we could promote and encourage to Sharita's point of defying the bureaucracy, but still getting away with it. Any other final thoughts or concluding issues moving forward? I mean, I'll, I'll second uh, Vass's point. I think um, we have an opportunity here to lead the way, and uh, we do need a task force of sorts. But I, I think, you know, we're... Coming out of this crisis, uh, we're seeing a catalyst, you know, unintended given I'm from the catalyst, um, is a shift in balance between employer and employees. And I think that's something for us to continue to be aware of um, and see how it plays a role. But also uh, cautioning workplaces and governments to not make decisions based on real estate. Because I, I find there's a lot of discussion still being had around the value of the properties that are being held and how this rapid shift could change the, the way the real estate market operates. And I just want to caution people around, you know, decisions that are led with that as the base principle. So uh, we have to think about the people and, and, and how we can create real change, not just. Well, and I think it gets into a larger conversation about who gets to set policy priorities and who gets to participate in those policy discussions. Sharita? Um, I just wanted to say that perhaps we could think of some of that office space um, being developed into affordable housing. Yeah. Because that's really important right now as well. So yeah. Ag there's Agreed. <laughs> and, and, and not just affordable housing, social services, right? Daycares. Yeah. Right. You know, uh, uh, public schools like there's ways in which that real estate and that property can absolutely be reconfigured. Uh, Stroh, who's been listening along, uh, posted a comment. The future of work would be much more clear if basic needs were guaranteed, like a guaranteed income and education would make for a better workforce. And I think that's why today's conversation has lent itself to all these different policy ideas because it is about a larger social agenda. It is about a larger policy context. Um, one, sorry, before oh. we go, yeah. what's that? Mute. Yes, that's correct. I pressed the mute button when I turned the comments down. Thankfully, I summoned my double once more. This is my little mannequin. If only I could talk like this and have the mannequin talk, then I'd be really rocking and rolling. Um, sorry, there was a couple more comments in our chat that I wanted to bring in, but I got a little distracted here. Um, Danger Darren said once the app told his boss that he was in the middle of a nearby river and he called concerned and it was just a GPS issue, but it was nonetheless just a tad creepy. Uh, Guter Glee said distributed work seems to be way faster when it comes to bottom-up innovation rather than the top-down sort of coming from the state. Uh, Danger Darren says, thank you for the incredible discussion. I can't believe we can jump on Twitch and hear from such bright uh, kind of pondering these fantastic subjects. And 
Um, before we end, I did sort of want to showcase that, you know, one of the benefits of using technology, right, is <laughs> it allows you to sort of do different things in different ways.